when a president has a conspiracist mindset and the capacity to impose his compromised sense of reality on the nation, it is an extraordinary thing and a very powerful force, a force that can't be ignored. Once he is on the periphery, if not gone altogether, that force will, will disappear. Now, that's not to say that conspiracism will disappear. It has lots of footholds. It still has representation in Congress. I mean, new representation, more and more representation in Congress. And we haven't talked about the Republican Party, which enabled all of this. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. It was great to have the chance to talk with Nancy Rosenblum. Nancy is professor of ethics in politics and government emerita at Harvard University. Her field of research is historical and contemporary political thought. She's the co-author of a recent book called A Lot of People Are Saying, the new conspiracism, and the assault on democracy. In that book, she makes the distinction between conspiracy theories that are based on connecting dots and evidence and conspiracism, something that Trump specializes in, which is based on bold assertion. We had an extremely timely and illuminating discussion, I thought. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Nancy Rosenblum at Harvard. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Not at all. My name is Nancy Rosenblum. I'm a political theorist, and I was chair of the Department of Government at Harvard University and the Senator Joseph Clark Professor of Ethics in Politics and Government. I'm now a professor emerita, and um, I'm here to talk mainly about a book that I just co-authored with Russell Muir, head of Dartmouth University, called A Lot of People Are Saying the New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. And I've read the book, and it is a very useful one for this time, somewhat unfortunately, perhaps. I wonder, though, if I couldn't get you to talk a little bit about your path to writing that book. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Teaneck, New Jersey, where I went to public high school. And I then went uh, in the late 60s, I was class of 69, to um, Radcliffe College, which was still Radcliffe and not yet Harvard. So I was in university and in graduate school during the Vietnam War era, which was formative. And I then became a professor at Harvard at Brown and then back to Harvard. And I've written a number of books in political theory. What first attracted you to political theory? Well, as a high schooler and, and, and uh, as I say, an undergraduate, politics was everywhere. You couldn't avoid it. And 
I got very involved, but I was not interested in doing empirical political science kinds of work. I didn't know there was such a thing as political philosophy or political theory until my sophomore year in college, where I took two classes with several very well-known and terrific political philosophers, Judith Schlar and Michael Walser, who were very different, but who both um, spurred my imagination and who both did something that I've since done in my own work, which is talk about politics, both historically and in terms of literature. And that's been very important to me, the aesthetic side of this. So what was it about that learning then that that captured you? As I say, I think, first of all, there was a congruence with the times and that it was, you know, ethical. It was about political morality. It's not an accident that the title of the chair that I ended up with finally was uh, Ethics in Politics and Government. So I was interested really in the moral side of it and in the, the moral psychology of it, not just abstract ethics. And that's where the literature comes in, because great writing, both novels and um, history and so on, give you portraits of uh, political morality in action, its failures and its possibilities. I read, and I don't know if it's true, but I read that you were one of the first female faculty members at Brown. Is that right? At Brown? No, I don't think that that's right. Then that needs to be corrected in the yeah. Wikipedia article on you. Oh, I'll have a check. <laughs> but there's no question that when I, I was coming up in my field, there were very few women who had regular, you know, latter faculty appointments. And I was part of a group of graduate students at Harvard, women graduate students, who all went on to be very successful and to do important work. And we were not, certainly not the first women in politics or in government department or anything, but we were a phalanx in political theory. And I think that camaraderie, and we did have a great deal of camaraderie, was important for my career. If you had to characterize the work that you did prior to a lot of people are saying, what's the sort of common thread through the books that you wrote? Well, there is a common thread, and that's the idea of pluralism. And by pluralism, I never meant, um, you know, sort of identity politics and the sociological divisions of class and uh, religion and so on and so forth. By pluralism, I meant that in sophisticated societies like ours, we live our lives in many different spheres of life, in plural spheres. We live in the public sphere of politics, we have work, we have friends, we have family, we have voluntary associations of all kinds, we have neighbors. And what interests me is the, the freedom and the possibilities of moving from sphere to sphere and the fact that they are not all congruent with one another. And one of the great advantages of pluralism is that, and, and the, the uses of pluralism, one of the subtitles of a book was The Moral Uses of Pluralism in America is that you can experiment, that you can repair deficits that you have in one area in another, that you can find certain kinds of associations where you have status and respect and not if you don't in others. And so the main theme is, is uh, pluralism. If I asked someone about a company, I would say, what's the founding story for your company? What's the founding story for this book a lot of people are saying? Well, it wasn't so long ago, so I remember it very distinctly. You know, I had watched, like everybody, the Trump campaign and seen the lies and the conspiracy claims. Even when he won the election of 2016, you know, he was saying that it had been rigged because he actually won the popular vote. What primed me to do this writing was 
uh, the day after the inauguration when uh, he had been claiming that he had the biggest crowd, inaugural crowd in all of history, maybe in all the world, as he always says. Um, and when the uh, National Park Service uh, published the photographs of the inaugural crowd the next day, they were modest. And his immediate reaction was the photographs were doctored. Now, this was a conspiracy claim, right? I mean, there there were people in the National Park Service who didn't want to show that he had had the biggest uh, inaugural crowd in history. And he came out with this. And not only did he come out with this, but his press secretary and others said it too. I mean, in, in, in galling acts of submission, they repeated that the photographs were doctored. And this was the beginning because I found it extremely disorienting, this conspiracist claim. It was absurd. It was disorienting. And a, and a steady diet of absurdity really can turn you upside down. It was an assault on reality. It was an assault on common sense. And I saw that it did more than just disoriented me and many other people. I mean, we really couldn't adapt to what became a flood of conspiracy claims as well as simple lies. And that is that there was being created what you know a philosopher would call an epistemic divide. That is a divide in the country about nothing less than what it means to know something. What does it mean to know that the photographs were doctored or not doctored? What does it mean to know that the election was rigged or not rigged? How do you reason about it? And this uh, unbridgeable divide about what we think it means to know something I believed from the start was going to alter, if not eclipse ordinary politics, because it makes it impossible to analyze or argue or persuade or negotiate and even to disagree. I found myself disoriented for sure. And I think still am to a a degree. It's hard to watch. Why your co-author? How did that come together? Russ Muirhead was a junior colleague of mine uh, at Harvard early on. And We were both writing books on political parties, and we began to write articles together. We've since then written about, I don't know, a dozen articles together about political parties from the point of view of a political theorist. It may interest you to know that when I wrote my, my book on political parties, democratic thinkers, democratic theorists in the United States and even abroad never, ever talked about political parties. They talked about movements. And, uh, you know, they talked about left and right wing movements. They talked about so on and so forth, but nothing, nothing about political parties. Whereas in political science, in empirical political science, the definition of democracy was a conflict between parties, you know, for, for elected office. So there was this disjuncture, this absence in political theory. And I wrote this book and Russ sometime later finished his book. And that was the beginning of our collaboration. We write separate books all the time, but we did get together to write this one. And I think because one of the first things we both noticed was that what Trumpian conspiracism was doing was delegitimating the idea of political opposition. And this became clear very early on. The opposition party was treasonous. It was an enemy. It had no business holding office. It should be obstructed in every way possible. It should be, in in fact, dehumanized, and eventually his rogue violence really did aim at the opposition party and its leadership. So that's where we started, and then we got into a whole host of wider questions about what the new conspiracism was and, and what its consequences were. But 
that's how we got together to do the project. So you make this distinction between sort of classic conspiracy theory and what you're calling the new conspiracism. What, when did you develop that and how and, and explain it? Very early on, it was one of the first things we noticed as we began to talk. And the first little piece we wrote, uh, I forget for whom, was, was on just that theme. So everybody knows what conspiracy theory is. It's classic. It's a way of explaining why it is that things are not as they seem. And conspiracy theory works just the way any other kind of explanation works. You have evidence, you have an argument, you have dots, the dots form a pattern, the patterns show uh, malignant intent. And if you read any conspiracy theory, the assassination of John Kennedy, for example, or um, the conspiracy theories, several of them behind 9-11, they read like uh, research, like science, like ordinary you know, uh, ways in which an academic or anybody else would write an explanation of something. It's full of evidence. If you read, um, there are books and books and books about the evidence that uh, a lone gunman did not kill Kennedy. So we recognize what conspiracy theory is. And if you like, I'll give you my favorite example of it. Sure. Well, my favorite example, because people know it, is the Declaration of Independence. That is, that it begins with the line, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But what was not self-evident at the time that they were writing the Declaration was that the British were intending to enslave the colonies. And so they had a list of, I think it's 17 grievances. These are the dots that add up to pattern to show the malignant intent of the crown and the colonial governors to enslave America. And anybody who reads the declaration on the 4th of July probably leaves this out in an oral reading and passes through it, but it's the crux of the matter. It's the evidence, the argument that this has to be a war of independence, not any kind of reconciliation. That's classic conspiracy theory. And and I should just say before we go on that lots of conspiracy theories are true. If you look at Wikipedia, they act as if a conspiracy theory, or, or hear people talking about it today, it's as if a conspiracy theory is by definition fantastical and false. But that's not so. There are many conspiracy theories are, that are true. But let me just go on to say what, what has happened and what has changed. And that is Trump initiated a form of conspiracy charge that is conspiracy without the theory. That is, it's sheer assertion. There's no evidence, there's no argument, it dispenses with any of the stuff that comes with classic conspiracy theory. It's just sheer bravado and assertion. The election is rigged. Uh, the press is fake news. And there are lots of reasons why it is that this form of conspiracism, the sheer assertion, the conspiracy without the theory, has caught on. But it's very powerful. People respond to it in a way that they don't necessarily respond to classic conspiracy theory. I live uh, about six, seven blocks away from Comet Pizza. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> We had a guy come in, as you know, and, and shoot through a door to try to rescue children getting molested by people associated with Hillary, obviously all, well, he discovered made up, right? That's new conspiracism, right? It started off as new conspiracism. That's true. That is to say, Hillary Clinton was running a child sex trafficking ring out of Comet Ping Pong. That's it. 
And it went wild, this idea. It's a very good example for something important, I think, Nathaniel, and that is that what did people think when they avowed that this has happened, right? When they liked it and retweeted it and spread it and then began to amplify it. And our argument is that belief is not the right way to look at this. Now, it's true that Edward Welsh, the lone gunman who went to shoot up the place to rescue the children, and who said afterwards, the intel on this wasn't 100%. (laughs) Um, I love that. You can say that he believed it. He thought that this was true. But for most people, for most conspiracies, and I think it's even true today about the election being rigged, the point is not belief. It's not a matter of believing the fact of the matter and not repeating it when you know it's factually false. And it's not a matter of saying, you know it's false, but you say it's true anyway. It's that these conspiracy claims contain a deeper truth. And the deeper truth in the case of Comet Ping Pong is obviously that Hillary Clinton is so evil, you could imagine it would be plausible. It's true enough to say that she's running a child sex trafficking ring. And I can give you a couple of examples of what people say, indicating this notion of it true enough, right? Because there's a deeper truth here. Um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was asked by reporters in in a press conference about a video that showed a Muslim attacking an American. And it turned out that this video really was doctored. And her answer to the questioner was, whether it's a real video or not, the threat is real. Yeah, I read that in your book. Yeah, yeah I have a lot, a lot of examples of that. Attorney General Barr did the same thing in his hearings. That, that is, that it's plausible, it's imaginable, and it's plausible and imaginable because it gets at a deeper political truth. It could have been. It was true enough. In the case of the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Place, I know that the people who amplified that theory had, among other things, looked at Hillary's emails and found what they would call clues, or they thought, oh, here's a code word for this. And and they took what were, you know, pretty innocuous words and and changed their meaning in their minds. So they started to to find the the pieces of a theory. When I was reading your book, I had to struggle to keep in my head that distinction between the classic and the new conspiracism. How do you think about that? When I think some of the people following these conspiracy theories without data then start to manufacture data around them. You're right. And, I, you know, it, it's, it's not important that we make an absolute division between th- these things. I'll, I'll say two points. One is that if you're looking at what's salient and powerful and what has tempered the time of the last four years, it's Trump's conspiracist mindset. I don't think there's any question that this a sheer assertion without any evidence or argument is true of him. That is, he, he will say the election was rigged. He will repeat, as he has just recently about this election being rigged, um, all kinds of little clues or dots that people provide. But the power of this thing is coming from the fact that you don't really have to provide evidence. 
I'm going to say something many people might disagree with right here, and that is that even now, when we see all of the danger, the seriousness and the danger of conspiracism writ large, we have to, I believe, that for many people who follow these things, what's going on here is almost a kind of entertainment, almost a kind of game. For many of them, it's very serious. For many of them, this is their uh, political identity. They love the performative aggression of it and so on. But for other people, conspiracism really is almost like a game. And I think that's true of quite a few people who follow QAnon and Pizzagate as well. I had talked to someone recently who was noting the professional wrestling background that Trump has and his using sort of the concept of kayfabe of this fake reality and his acquaintance with that and talking about that. And there's some kind of overlap, I think, between different threads of understanding Trump. There seems to be often an awareness with him that he is giving a performance, an awareness with some of the people that are listening to him that he is, and other people who are taken in to different degrees, it seems like. Well, I think that that's right. There, there are lots of responses. This is a complicated phenomenon. When it comes to Trump, I, I have a very uh, serious view of this. I mean, I think this man has what's been called a solipsistic sense of reality. That is, the only reality he recognizes is one that meets his own deep needs. That for the most part, uh, his conspiracism and his lies, for that matter, are, are not strategic. They're what he thinks about reality. And his what's peculiar about him is that his concern is not whether people out there, including his followers, believe the truth of what he says. What's important for him is that they assent to his version of reality. He sets out to own and shape reality, and he has done it to an extraordinary to an extraordinary degree. It's amazing how how powerful it's been, given its you know untethered nature to reality a lot of times. But I also noticed that he doesn't just create conspiracy; he also makes use of it. I listened to the hour phone call that he had with the uh, the Georgia Secretary of State and other people. And, yeah. Right, right. And during that call, he puts forward a lot of sort of data, which is drawn from the conspiracies that he's reading online, clearly, or that are being handed to him in one form or fashion. And he uses that because they're part of his view, which is, I couldn't have lost without cheating. There's cheating going on in these cities you know, fix this for me. Right. I, I just wrote something. He has nine conspiracy claims in that phone call, that there were unregistered voters, forged signatures, altered Dominion voting machines, poll workers carting away ballots and duffel bags, stolen drop boxes, 3,000 pounds of shredded ballots, and ballots cast by children and the dead. Right. None of this is anything that anybody has any evidence for. None, which is why all of his cases were dismissed in court for lack of evidence. None of these fantastic concoctions were his own. He was, as you say, repeating it. But let me try to push a little bit more on why his compromised sense of reality has shaped what's happened to us over the last four or five years. And that is that once he became president, he could impose this compromised sense of reality on the nation, not just by tweeting and getting people to 
follow him or to think that it's true enough and so on and so forth. But, but he used it to alter institutions. He used it to delegitimate the two most important foundational institutions of American democracy. One is political parties by denying uh, the notion of a loyal and legitimate opposition. And the other, certainly at least as important, was he went about um, quite deliberately delegitimating just about every knowledge-producing institution we have, from you know climate science to the EPA to the, the uh, Federal Reserve Board to normal press and so on and so forth. And, and he did this because he had a compromised sense of reality that he had the capacity as president to impose. And because, of course, there were no constraints on him because his, his party, what had become his party, were submissive or cynical. Well, he also very straightforwardly said, if I, if I don't call these people fake news, then you're going to listen to them. So I'm going to take them out. Right. But he also, I believe, believed that they were fake news. It's super hard to get into his head, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I'm not a psychoanalyst. I concur with the people, many of the psychologists and psychiatrists who wrote The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, that this is it would be very misleading and you'd be missing something important if you thought that he was just a very canny strategist. Was it his niece that said something about he's the only person she knows who could gaslight himself? Yeah. Well, he has deep needs, very deep needs to be the best, to be the world famous, to be have the most and so on and so forth. And when there's a reality out there, and of course there always is many realities out there that contradict that or question that he cannot abide them and so he has to destroy them or circumvent them or say they're not true or 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 whatever i just wanted to back up one step if i could i said that what's important is how he used conspiracism to delegitimate um these institutions knowledge producing institutions and parties i wanted to just insert a little notion of what delegitimation means, because I think it's been used promiscuously. And people have started using the phrase that he delegitimates things. And often they use it synonymously with they, he causes mistrust or distrust, right? So people now don't trust the vaccine or whatever. But delegitimization is something really different and really much worse. I mean, it's the notion that an institution, for example, the EPA or the Justice Department before it was altered to his taste, that these institutions have no meaning, they have no value, and they have no authority. And they have no authority for us, which means that we do not have to comply with them. And this is how Trump's conspiracism and his delegitimation are taking us down a road to violence. One of the terms that you use in the book is malignant normality. <laughs> what does yeah. that mean? Uh, I didn't invent that term. It's a great one. It was invented by um, Robert J. Lifton in a piece that he wrote. Um, and actually in his, an earlier book of his about Nazi doctors. And that's the notion that you can create a reality within an institution by you know, putting in loyalists and people who repurpose the institution. It can have the formal look that it always did, but its purposes have changed. For example, the Justice Department, as everyone notices, has become his private attorney and not a neutral arguer for uh, what the law ought to be for, for people. And 
then you create within these institutions a new normality, but it's a malignant normality. And most people, civil servants, even good people, will learn to adapt to that reality. You have some whistleblowers and you have some people who resign, but most people after a while manage to adapt to that reality for, for a whole number of reasons. And then you've created a new institution and a malignant normality within it. And I think you can use this phrase malignant normality really to almost describe the political temper of the last few years, because some of us, you know, are always in a state of disorientation and turmoil, but other people adapt. How do you understand the people who like the, the, I don't know how we want to label them, but the people who showed up to Trump's rally a couple days ago, who marched over to the Congress and some of whom got, got into the Capitol. I listened to it a brief interview with a young woman who'd been maced at the door. She was crying. She was super upset. She felt like, you know, something really unfair had happened to her when people had blocked her from going in there. And and the person interviewing her asked her, you know, why are you trying to do this? And she said, you know, we're enacting a revolution. You know, I'm here from Knoxville, Tennessee to do this. She is in the sway, but she's just you know, in a certain way, she's just a kid. How do we understand them in this context of conspiracism and assault on our democracy? Yeah. <laughs> this is this is a $64,000 question, isn't it? Why, why do people assent to this and then take the actions they do? So let me say that there are sort of five steps leading, leading up to what happened that explain, and these five steps, you know, give you a sense of why it is the people assent to this conspiracism and like it and retweet it and avow it and so on and so forth. For some people, from the very start, they love the performative aggression of it, right? It allows them to vent their hostilities on people. The very action of repeating his claims that uh, the uh, press are the public enemy, they love the aggression of it. And then, as I said before, to them it's true enough. There's an underlying deeper truth. You know, this is the third and most important step, maybe, that... By assenting to Trump's conspiracism, they create and avow a collective we. That is, there's a kind of tribalism, a we created. And also, uh, avowing conspiracism is uh, a form of political participation. It's unorganized and uncoordinated, and it's really without ideology or a system of philosophy or a positive program of action, but it is a form of political participation. And then there's one more gratification that comes with it, and that is these people think of themselves as the, as the cognoscenti, right? That they know the deeper truth. That all of us, you know, are caught in this old reality of evidence and argument and they have access to the deeper truth. So all of that is behind what happened. But then how do you get from there to the violence, right? Because that's, that's really what is distinct here. It wasn't that there weren't Trumpists who engaged in rogue violence before. I mean, there was a plot to you know, to kidnap the Michigan governor. And there's all kinds of protest uh, demonstrations and rallies that were quasi-violent. And these people have used intimidation uh, and threats and harassment before. But this really was a very different kind of action. And you're asking, how did it happen? And how did these people get to do it? Is that your question? 
It's certainly a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give what I think is the, you know, the, the answer, which is that these particular groups, two things about them. One is many, many of these people, not all of them by any means, but many of these people were part of groups that had long avowed violence, right? Independently of Trump. Some of them, some of these groups were formed before Trump was ever on the scene, right? And they were, they were violent. They loved their guns and they threatened and they harassed and so on and so forth. So for some of them, uh, this was an extraordinary action to be sure, but they were, you know, armed and loaded. Uh, before and they've been this. planning openly for weeks. And they, right. and they had, and they had been planning. I, I think the way you connected to Trump and conspiracism is to say that uh, that Trump had been since since he, his successful election in 2016, talking about voter fraud and the elections being rigged and things stolen from from him. In this case, the whole election being stolen from him. He didn't call initially for violence. He went through all the other things. He hoped that his Republicans in the state legislatures would act. He hoped that Pence would act. He hoped that his litigation would work. And then he was at the end of his rope. I mean, there, there was no way in which his reality that he really won could be made true except by stopping the certification of Biden. It's not clear to me that this would really have happened or that it would have come out the way it had had it not been for his, what is it, Save America rally in which he really did, acted like a commander sending his troops into battle. If you've read the transcript of that rally, it's really quite extraordinary. He, he talks about how we have to be strong and not weak, that we can't let them get away with this. He says, as if he's a commander sending his troops into battle, he says eight times in a row, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then he says, I'm going to march with you, which of course he did not, and he sent them off. And I think given the compliment of people who were there and the conspiracy claims about the election and and his revving them up to do this, that this was the last chance, there was nothing else, you, you got what I can't help but wonder if you have any sense of how we bring people back who have fallen into this, if there's a an antidote. I think the first thing I'd say is that that's not the question for me. Because I think that the, the people who are um, so hostile, so ready to lock and load, so devoted to conspiracism as a way of understanding the political world, so satisfied with the collective we that they've created uh, around Trump, that they are the last people that you could ever alter or change. And I don't think we need to. I think our attention should be on the vast majority of the population that is disoriented, that really doesn't know whether these conspiracy theories are something that correspond to reality or not, that are amenable, it is possible, to bring them back to what I call so that reality bites for them, to return government to a way in which agencies actually work as they're supposed to for the purposes they're supposed to and bring certain benefits to people. That's our job, not to try to convince those whose really deep identity is based on anger and, and anger and conspiracism. I sort of see this new conspiracism as a different 
like we got COVID. This is another kind of virus in a certain way. Is there a vaccine to protect, you know, I guess it's education, but how do we protect people who haven't fallen prey to it from falling prey to it? Well, I think I think that an, an awful lot of the impetus of this will go when Trump goes. Again, I, I, I said that twice before, I think, so I don't want to bore you to death, but it, when a president has a conspiracist mindset and the capacity to impose his compromised sense of reality on the nation, it is an extraordinary thing and a very powerful force, a force that can't be ignored. Once he is on the periphery, if not gone altogether, that force will, will disappear. Now, that's not to say the conspiracism will disappear. It's, it, it has lots of footholds. And it, above all, I mean, it, it still has representation in Congress. I mean, new representation, more and more representation in Congress. And we haven't talked about the Republican Party, which enabled all of this. Maybe that's a good time to ask the question, which is, I mean, you, you've obviously written quite a bit about parties and defense of parties. There is a significant relationship between new conspiracism and party, and and it's not wholly out of the Democratic Party, but it's mostly tied to the Republican Party, right? Yeah. The Democrats are classic conspiracy theorists. Rachel Maddow is a classic conspiracy theorist. So it's not that the Democrats are without conspiracy. It's that the new conspiracism, that is the absence of evidence and argument and the claim to own reality goes with the Republican Party. I'm not sure what, where I should start on this because it's a really interesting thing that I care a lot about. But uh, let me just point out that before Trump, the Republican leaders in Congress, let's use McConnell as the leader of this, opposed every Obama initiative, opposed his nominations, including famously Merrick Garland to the court, suppressed votes, all kinds of voter suppression on the part of Republicans. They wanted to hold power in any way. And so you have from the start the shadow of Democrats as an enemy, that it's illegitimate. And, and McConnell acted on that. He goes all the way back to Newt Gingrich. When Trump came to power, McConnell, I think, thought he could work with him and with the extremist members that had been nominated, uh, Republicans who had been nominated, that he could work with the president. He did because he got things that he wanted, taxes and judges and immigration, and also because Trump was so turned the opposition into an enemy, into a public enemy that had to be stopped. And this suited McConnell because this is what exactly what the Republicans have been doing for many years. And when it became clear that they couldn't control or contain Trump, these Republicans had a decision to make. I mean, would they speak truth to conspiracy? And they didn't. Some were supplicants, some were cynical. An impeachment is an example. But I think the really critical example of the Republican supplication, suppression, subordination, is self-subordination is the pandemic. Because you almost never heard any Republican elected official speak out about a Trump's denial of the seriousness or speak out about the fact that for several months now, Trump has given up any attempt to control the pandemic and many, many people, including their constituents, are dying. I think that's the great um, both shame and, and illustration of what happens when a political party loses its way, completely loses its way. You do talk about things that 
we should do in a democracy to fight this in the conclusion of the book. I think as good theory does, it made me think differently about the night after the riots into the Capitol, because I, on Facebook to some friends, had indicated how upset I was. And then I said, they have to go through the voting tonight and get it done. They just have to. And then they did while I was asleep. And I woke up at 3.30 or something to check it. And and they had, and the enactment of that regular process reduced my anxiety a lot. And it, it seems like that's part of what needs to happen, obviously, is we need to do the business of democracy in a regular way, right? I think that's exactly true. I mean, what I mean by enacting democracy is, in a way, it's, it's pedagogical. You not only do the right thing, that is regular order and regular process by law and so on and so forth, but you say you're doing it and you show why you're doing it. And there are you know, examples of it, but I think that the, the one you gave of two nights ago is exactly right. Now, what has not happened in the past is that one of our two political parties, one that's often in power, um, has not done this. They have not gone back to regular order. They have submitted to any any violation and any trespass and any malignant normality that the president has imposed on these institutions. What we saw the other night was that many, although by no means all of them, were chastened and did go along with an abbreviated process that was already malignant because it was you know challenging the uh, outcome of the election again in a different form. I think that what you're reporting is exactly right, and I felt the same way, and I know many people did. They were relieved that it had been done. And I think that Nancy Pelosi's call for um, impeachment is that too. In Mitt Romney's speech, I found something important that tied to what you were saying too. You, you talked about speaking truth to conspiracy, and he said something about you other Republicans, you other senators and congressmen, I assume, you need to tell your constituents that this voter fraud is not true. You have to, it is your job to tell them the truth and you've not been doing it. Yes, he's right. He's right. They bear a lot of the blame for everything that's happened over the years and culminating in this, in this election. And the, the question to be examined, and it will be, is exactly why and there are three or four reasons, I think, but why they did not tell the truth. Because many, many of them, not all of them, know that this election was not rigged. So they withheld what they knew from their constituents. And whether it's cynicism, because they hope to use it to their own political advantage, or fear, or naivete, I, I don't know what it is. But it's, it's just an extraordinary thing we've watched. And I don't know that this party can be reconstructed or what will happen, but that's the Republicans' problem, not mine. Can you tell me a little about the reception to this book? My, my guess is that it had a wider audience than some of the previous stuff. I'm not sure, but what openings is that given for you to you know, have input into the public dialogue now? Well, yes, it has been received. It's been used by many writers and pundits. And Russ and I have done an awful lot of both public speaking and podcasts and interviews and so on on this. Um, 
it has been, you know, a step into the actual political world that I hadn't taken before. Most of my books um, have been read mainly by academic audiences. So this was a novelty for me, and it feels very good to be part of this public conversation. I note just one or two things. One is that once once people get your name, they want you to come and talk about anything, everything, things you know nothing about. And I can see how people get suckered into it. It takes a certain kind of self-discipline, and maybe academics have it, uh, to say, you know, that's not what I know. <laughs> this is the one thing I know, and I'm not going to go and talk about whatever it was that yesterday I was asked to talk about. So that that's interesting because it gives you an idea of that you must see them, people who are on television all the time who will talk about anything and everything. It's really quite quite an amazing thing. So, yes, I think that the book has had its impact. I think people have, by and large, accepted the notion of conspiracy without the theory. It's not absolute. As you say, it's, it's a, more of a spectrum than a, than a d- clear divide. But there's something new, and it is related, I think, to the technology that we have. So, You published this book, well, it came out in the spring of 2020, I guess. And since then, Trump has really outdone himself from August forward about the election and, and other things. Does anything that's happened make you want to update any of it, or does it feel like you guys got it right? I think that what we said was right. And I don't think that I would have needed to write anything else to say what you and I have been talking about vis-a-vis the election. But I do think that other things happened because of COVID and how that how that happened and how the conspiracism could, could infect something that's so visceral and physical and death anxiety, and yet it did. Uh, that's, an, to me, an extraordinary event, the way in which he undermined public health, successfully undermined public health in a country with people dying. How, how did that happen? And I don't think that, that the apparatus that we developed in this book is sufficient to explain that. If you were hanging out with President-elect Biden and he wanted to know about what you had to say here and, and was asking your advice about how to be a good president after Trump, what might you say to him? I don't think that I have any special kinds of advice for him because I don't think it's his business really to to try to undo uh, all of the damage the conspiracism has has done. I think what he can do is to be just who he is. That is someone who will return things to normal order, who uh, speaks uh, factually about reality. And I think probably the most important thing that could be done hopefully he'll be able to do it, and it's beyond the points that we made earlier, is to make government work for people. <laughs> I mean, an awful lot of the susceptibility to hostility and aggression and, and, and seeing others as an enemy and so on and so forth is the fact that people suffer from a government that doesn't work. And we just went through four years of a president who was disinterested in governing. You've said something a little bit ago about you know, as Trump fades, I'm nervous that he won't, that he's going to be running again, that he still has a lot of people, that he could capture the nomination, or if he doesn't, one of his 
offspring might, but you know, hopefully you're right. And I think he really hurt himself in the last few days. I hope so. I wonder how it feels to you, though, after thinking so hard about this to contemplate a post-Trump time. How does that feel? <laughs> it feels great. <laughs> <laughs> it feels great. I think that he was, is a cruel and dangerous immoralist uh, with a lot, awful lot of power for too long. I do think that it's likely that Trump will fade from view, but I, that's not to say that that either the constituency for conspiracism or the use of conspiracism, this time cynically, by Republicans especially, will cease. So I, I don't think this is going to be behind us. But to repeat for what I think may be the fourth time, it will be very different when you don't have a conspiracist mindset in the Oval Office with the power to impose his own reality on the nation. Thank goodness for that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Nancy, is there a question that I should have asked that I failed to? No, I think this was a fabulous interview. Oh, I appreciate that. Oh, uh, one of the very best I've done, Nathaniel, i got to say. Wow. Well, it's been a great honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? Not at all. Just to thank you. To thank you. This was, this was not a chore. This was interesting. That's wonderful. That was Nancy Rosenblum at Harvard. Her book is A Lot of People Are Saying. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.